Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them, Psalm 8. The title of our study today is called The Glory of God. But real quick before I get started, I just want to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies or the things I do as a ministry, please hit the like button, hit the share button, and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. It sounds silly, I know, but it really helps make sure that this teaching can be more easily found for the folks who need it. The more action and activity that social media sees, you know, because you're digging this stuff, the more likely it is to recommend it to other people who might dig it also. And at the end of the day, it really helps us bring glory to the Lord as this stuff gets out into the world. Amen? All right, so enough of that. Let's check these verses. In Psalm 8, the Bible says this. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a Psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beast of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Woo, all right. So this psalm is loaded with good stuff. So we're going to do like we did with Psalm 7 and break this up into three pieces. On today's episode, we're going to look at just verses 1 and 2. So let's break down those verses. So the glory of God is beyond human comprehension. The Bible describes God's glory as literal light, but it's not like any kind of light that we can relate to in this life especially. When God created the heavens and the earth, he proclaimed, let there be light, and then there was light. <laughs> there were three full days before God created the sun, moon, and stars. This means that somehow there was light in an abyss of water that had no form yet, but there wasn't anything to see as the actual source of light like we see now. Today, the sun, the moon, and the stars are the way that we see light and the source of it. But those lights are weak. The sun only illuminates part of the earth at certain parts of the day. The moon hides and it weakens throughout the month. The stars... They're bright in some places, but they're pretty dim in others. And, you know, you get things like light pollution from city lights and things like that. So they can't even really be seen sometimes at night and definitely not during the day. Now, when God said, let there be light, the entire universe was illuminated. I mean, think about that. Now, the most important thing to consider about God's revelation of glory as light is that the Bible describes his essence as light. When God said, let there be light, he didn't create light like he created the sun, moon, and stars. Even though the effects of God's word were equally profound from the first day to the fourth, the words used to describe God's work are different. 
day one was unique. In Genesis 1-3, God didn't create light. The original language suggests that he revealed light. The phrase, let there be, that we see in English, is the same Hebrew word used to describe God himself when he said, I am, in Exodus 3.14, while talking to Moses through the burning bush. This phrase is unique to the other words used to describe how God created the other facets of the universe on the rest of the creation week. In other words, when God spoke in Genesis 1.3, he revealed himself in a particular way to make himself known in the new physical plane of reality that he was creating. His glory was so great and so transcendent and so majestic that his natural essence was enough to fill all of space. Now, David, right, King David here, was kind of tripping out on this concept in Psalm 8. In this psalm, David wrote words that described his amazement over the extent of God's glory, not just to fill space, but also to functionally accomplish tangible results by just desiring things and then making them happen. God's glory is not only manifested through light. God made light appear so that the world could have a reference point to the extent of his glory, right? We needed something to see because we can't see him and live. There are other things, though, that God did in creation that manifest the power of his glory and the wisdom of his glory also. In Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2, David wrote about the supremely exalted glory of God and the power that God was able to manifest by his glory to accomplish a purposeful result according to his promise that he would ultimately declare in the future. In other words, the glory of God is also the way that God expresses his power in order to fulfill his eternally unconditional promises to his people. The first lines of Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2, are pretty profound in themselves. Again, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. So David began by referring to God here as Yahweh. The fully capitalized reference of the Lord, like if you have a New King James version of the Bible especially, tells us that this is the original Hebrew word Yahweh. This is a reference to God as the creator of all things. This title, and I guess you could say the name for God, refers to his eternally self-existing and self-sustaining nature. It's sometimes referred to as the promise name of God because it's the word most often used in connection with God's promises to mankind, especially through his covenants with Israel. It's God's eternally self-existing and self-sustaining power and wisdom that enables God to fulfill the promises that he's made. If God isn't eternally self-existing and self-sustaining, then he wouldn't be able to fulfill the eternal promises that we see in the scriptures. Now, when David referred to God as Yahweh, he was acknowledging God's unique and supreme nature as the creator of all things, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was, who is, and who is to come the unchanging, faithful God Most High who came before all things, and in him all things consist. When we see the name Yahweh, those are all the loaded concepts we need to bring with our understanding. David was recognizing the God of Israel as this one true living God. Now, the English translation of the Bible shows that there is the use of another version of Lord that in some translations of the Bible use it in a way that is not fully capitalized. This is so that we can differentiate the second Lord from the first Lord, since it's a different Hebrew word in the original text. This second mention of the word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. Now, the word Adonai is a common Hebrew word, actually, that refers to any Lord or master. 
Now, this means here that David was submitting himself in humility to God, referring to God as his personal master. It wasn't just that God is eternally self-existing and self-sustaining, because he is, but also that David recognized God's superior and unique majesty and submitted himself to God for who he is. David called God his master in order to describe the quality of relationship that he wanted to have with God. David didn't want to be God's equal. David definitely didn't want to rebel against God. David wanted to be God's servant. David wanted to be an instrument and tool in the hand of God, used for God's supremely glorious and divine purposes. David didn't want to do his own thing and live his life his own way. David surrendered himself to God in order to live according to God's transcendent and eternal purposes. Why? Because of what he knew about God as Yahweh. Notice that David didn't have to reference anything that God had done in his life in order to justify his submission to the Lord. David wanted to be God's servant because he understood who God was. While God did plenty of good things in David's life, and we see a lot of that in Scripture, and made tremendous promises for him, also documented in Scripture, David was more in amazement about God's identity and his nature than anything else. David desired God for who he is, not just for the cool things that he gives. (laughs) David didn't have to be bought or enticed into God with bribes of good things, like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people approach God that way. A lot of people seek God with conditions, you know, vowing to follow God if he does something good for us and, you know, we'll follow him in return. This wasn't David's approach here. David was a man after God's own heart and a hero of faith, and this is why. This is, you know, that other attitude is not how David dealt with God. David received revelations from God concerning his amazing nature, his character, his integrity, his purposes, and he was won over simply by that. David loved God for who God is and wanted to give his life entirely over to him as a faithful servant committed to God's program. David was willing to live in such a way as a servant because he recognized the superior glory of God, because he's Yahweh. David referred to the excellency of God's name. Now, the name of God, you know, when you see that phrase there, it doesn't just refer to the titles used to describe him. God is more than the letters that form the name Yahweh. In fact, in the original text, it's only four letters. Or even, for that matter, the word Adonai, right? In the Hebrew culture, the name of a person typically describes the character of a person. The name of God refers to the character and identity of God. It refers to his attributes and his unique qualities that make him the one true living God. David recognized that God's identity, his nature, his character, his attributes, personality, his temperament, his integrity, and any other quality associated with him was supremely majestic and glorious above all things, including all people. David knew that no one could compare with God. There is nothing that was made or will be made that can compare with God. While the world has you know, a lot of cool things to see and a lot of things that bug us out in our minds, leaving us confused and, you know, wondering, wow, how did that happen? Those things are nothing compared to the beauty and wonder of God who made those things (laughs) by the power of his word. David explained that God's glory was supremely exalted above all things because God made it that way. God set his own glory above the heavens. This reference to the heavens is a reference to all heavens. God set his glory above the sky, 
In Psalm 68, verses 3 through 4, the Bible teaches that God's glory rides the clouds. That's kind of cool. <laughs> so that means that God's glory is above our sky. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, the Bible teaches that God measured the universe with the span of his own hand. <laughs> this explains that God's hand is bigger than our observable universe, which we say is infinitely expanding. Clearly, God's glory is above our universe. Still, God's glory is even greater than that. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, check this out in what the Bible says. It says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So, according to the testimony of revelation of Jesus Christ, especially what we read here in chapter 5, all of the angels in heaven recognize God's superior power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Ultimately, referring to his aseity, right? Eternally self-existing, self-sustaining, referring to his sovereignty, his omniscience, his providence, his holiness, his omnibenevolence, meaning that he's the only source of anything good. So here it's also important, though, to notice that all of the angels in heaven that are stated as too many to count recognize Jesus as having all of the unique attributes as Yahweh, who was David's master, because he is the lamb who was slain. So what do we learn from that? God is supremely glorious over the entire kingdom of heaven and all of the angels in it because he alone is the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. No one else could fulfill that role and do it perfectly as Jesus did, who is God in flesh. God manifested his glory by demonstrating his power to destroy all of the works of sin by taking the form of flesh in order to become the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And because he did it through death, but then raised himself from the dead and now sits in that throne of glory, <laughs> I don't think there's anyone coming close to him. Now, this foundational truth of the gospel is referenced in Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. David somehow understood that God demonstrated and manifested his superior glory in ways that are kind of paradoxical and backwards. How does God show that his glory transcends and exceeds all other forms of beauty and power. Well, the text says that he brought forth strength and praises out of the mouths of babes. Again, verse 2 says, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So this statement is a twofold reference. It generally speaks to God's ability to empower the weak, the lowly, the poor, and the pitiful, and so forth. The Apostle Paul explained it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 
So according to the Bible, God purposefully selected weak, foolish, pitiful, and base people in the world to be his people and heirs to his eternally unconditional promises. So the Lord just called each of us as believers <laughs> weak, foolish, pitiful, and base. So we're all in good company, but he ain't going to leave us in that condition. Praise the Lord of that. Paul wrote that God did this in order to put to shame the things that are honored and revered in this world by self-righteous standards, so that in the end, anyone in front of God cannot take glory from God. No one in heaven will be able to boast. Everyone in heaven will fully understand that we do not deserve to be there. And like the angels of heaven, we will loudly praise God for the work he did to conform our pitiful condition into his glorious image according to his mercy and his grace. Now, the second part of the reference deals with Bible prophecy. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus explained that the writings of David that we see here in Psalm 8-2 were actually fulfilled when the Jewish religious leaders rebuked Jesus for cleansing the temple complex. During that time of Jesus' ministry, literal children were praising Jesus for his works. Somehow, they were able to recognize the glory of Jesus' works as proving that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, and they proclaimed praises to him for it. Now, the Jewish religious leaders, on the other hand, were unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah, no matter how Jesus' works proved him to be so. This shows that the Jewish religious leaders were spiritually blinded to the true identity of Jesus, or Yeshua, right? While these young children were spiritually perceptive enough and empowered to praise Yeshua as God in flesh, just like David wrote. The people who seemed righteous and good, according to worldly standards, were spiritually blind and dumb. On the other hand, the children who were supposed to be dumb were the humble and faithful ones who were spiritually wise and empowered, giving glory to Jesus for who he is. This is what God desires to do. He expresses his glory and transcendent power by equipping humble, meek, lowly, base, foolish, and pitiful people to be his servants, filled with spiritual wisdom and power that comes only from him. David wrote exactly why God does things this way. God demonstrates his glory in this specific way so that he can silence his enemies and put them to shame, just like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Again, Psalm 8-2 reads, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Paul wrote that God desires to shame the wisdom of the world, right? The self-righteous ideologies of the world that seek to exalt people as if good human works are equal to God's holiness and righteousness. It's not how it works. God is going to make all that stuff look real stupid real soon. The world wants to honor people as if we're God, right? We congratulate and celebrate people for everything. A lot of times, we celebrate everything that they're doing that's evil, as if it's comparable to God's righteousness. The world wants to invent our own brand of wisdom and knowledge without considering God and His, right? As if we don't need Him. The Bible refers to this attitude and this ideology as self-righteousness and pride. It's the same attitude that got the devil expelled from his position in heaven, and it's going to be the chief cause for his ultimate demise in the end in the lake of fire. Satan 
also thought he could sit with the Most High, matching his power, his glory, wisdom, and control. The devil was wrong. God has been showing that those who seek independence, power, control, influence, and praise from people like that mean something, instead of honoring him for who he is, those people are ultimately going to be put to shame in their end. If we make our lives all about that pursuit, God says it will not end well for us. It's not physically and mentally strong people that are ordained with God's strength. And it doesn't matter what kind of religious creed or organization or you know ability they demonstrate to prove otherwise. God's word is what's true, not the works or actions of people. It's not people filled with worldly wisdom and knowledge that are compelled to praise God. You don't have to look very far to see that that's true. David wrote that God uses babes and nursing infants. In Jesus' case, during the time of Matthew 21, 16, this was like literal truth. (laughs) There were literal young people like babes and nursing infants celebrating the work of Jesus. The general point, though, is that God displays his supreme glory through the lives of those who humble themselves before him in the likeness of babes and nursing infants. And so what does that mean? Well, what's a babe and nursing infant? It refers to people who depend on him, like a newborn baby depends on their parents. For what? For provision, for protection, for instruction, and for purpose. That's what the scriptures are saying. If we're trying to figure all that stuff out on our own, we're not like babes and nursing infants. We think we got this, is like we like to say, right? Well, those aren't the ones that God is going to ordain with strength. The ones he ordains with strength are the ones who admit that we need to depend on the Lord for all provision, for all forms of protection, for all quality of instruction, and for ultimate purpose, right? God is truly glorious above all things, but he has declared the specific way that he will demonstrate that glory. When God took the form of flesh as Jesus Christ, he came as a servant to all, as the Lamb of God who would be slain. Jesus was not the powerful general that the people had hoped for, at least an outward appearance, right? Hoping that he would take Israel back from the people, either by force or with sneaky tactics. Now, those who truly desire to seek and know the glory of God need to understand the specific ways that he shows his glory, since God himself has set his glory above all things, and it's only accessible through the channel of humility and service. Who but God can bring exaltation and glory to this degree through lowliness, (laughs) right? Talk about backwards. But that's what the Bible teaches about the one that we know as God. Clearly, we can see that God does great things, but in ways that are totally backwards to the ways we would normally do things by nature. If we don't understand that principle, we're likely not growing very much in our understanding of God himself. So keep that in mind. Now, before I get out of here, I just want to give you a quick reminder to please take a second and make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure that you share the link to this podcast on your social media and make sure that you're letting people know about what we're doing here. We need all the people we can to know the truth about God and the hope that he wants to give all of us. Don't keep the people you know from hearing the truth and hope that they may need based on what the scriptures actually teach. 
And also, keep in mind that all of the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener-supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that make this stuff available to you. And this stuff ain't cheap. As well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the Word and prepare to this degree. And that's not very easy either. If this podcast is helpful to you, and you value this sort of teaching and dig on the beats and how we just generally operate here, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. We're a legit nonprofit. We have a 501c3 operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. Feel free to check us out. And if you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing, you can simply visit www.pastorbside.com. And it's B-side, like the flip side of a record. When you get there, hit the support tab at the top and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads. And believe me, every bit helps. And if the Lord would actually lead you, maybe even consider partnering monthly with us, making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church, because church is founded on the true teachings of the Bible, right? Being into the apostles' doctrine, and that's exactly what we do here. Ministries like this need support just like any other, with or without the pew in the pulpit. For all the false teachings that's being shared out there, look, let's partner together and make a strong effort to get more good teaching out there. So again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the study, and until next time, peace out.